Lord God, thank you that you be here this morning. Thank you that we have the privilege of opening your word. Um, and I ask that you would teach us this morning through it, Lord, that we get to know you better, get to know your, to understand your grace and your love, your amazing love better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we've just start, finished studying which book? Romans. Definitely not Romans. We've just finished studying the book of Ruth. What is, what is the story of Ruth about in very general terms? So there's a lady called <coughs> Naomi. Who did Naomi represent? Ruth. Who did, who did Naomi represent? The Jews, Israel, right? Was out of her land suffering. And then there was another lady called Ruth. Ruth was a Gentile. Who did she represent? The Gentile church. So we had these two women. We had Israel and we had the church. Israel and Gentiles. Both of them needed redeeming, right? Now, Naomi had a redeemer, a close relative, who was not given a name. What's his name? Who did he represent? Not Jesus, the other redeemer. Remember? Boaz wants to redeem Ruth, but before he can redeem her, the other redeemer has to say no. Who was the other redeemer? Who did he represent? No. In the Old Testament, how were the people of Israel supposed to be redeemed, made righteous? They were given the law of God, they had to obey the law of God, and if they failed to obey anything in the law of God, they had to sacrifice, right? Their means of salvation was the law. Obey the law, you will live, okay? That was the way that they would be made righteous. That's who that other redeemer represented, the law. But the law was unable to redeem Naomi, Israel, and it was particularly un, unwilling to redeem her if it meant also having to redeem Ruth, the Gentile, right? And so what the law could not do, who did? Jesus, who, was represent, who represented Jesus in the story. Boaz. So what this other redeemer, what this other Goel could not do, Boaz came and did instead, right? Boaz who represented Jesus. He redeemed. So Boaz was Naomi's redeemer. He was Israel's redeemer. Jesus is Israel's redeemer. But Boaz chose to redeem Ruth, the Gentile, and in the process redeemed Israel as well, Naomi as well. Does that make sense? That's the gospel told through the story of Ruth. That is the same gospel that Paul is now going to explain to us in 
much more detail in the book of Romans. It's the same story. It's the story of how we've been redeemed. And so the book of Romans is kind of like the study notes for the book of Ruth. It gives us all the detail that makes the book of Ruth make sense so that we can actually understand what's going on. Does that kind of make sense? So that's the book of Romans. So it actually leads in quite nicely from one to the other. What we're going to learn about is why was the law, the other redeemer, unable to redeem Naomi and Ruth? If the law is unable to redeem us, how are we supposed to be redeemed? Who is going to redeem us? And how are they going to redeem us? Paul is also going to talk about why, why is it that the Gentiles seem to find themselves redeemed while, the, while Israel aren't? And what is ultimately God's plan for redeeming Israel as well? All of that's in the book of Ruth and all of that's in the book of Romans, but in much more detail. Does that make sense? So that's the plan. Now, I've mentioned this to some of you guys before. Um, Paul's writing is amazing. It's beautiful. I love it. It's really quite magnificent. And the book of Romans is probably one of his, like, one of the most amazing pieces of writing, certainly, that he wrote. It's incredible. And it's, it's probably the most comprehensive and in-depth presentation of the gospel that exists in writing. It's an amazing, amazing book. And it, it transforms the world. Have you guys heard of a guy, have you heard of the Reformation? Have you heard of a guy called Martin Luther? Yes. Not Martin Luther King, right? But Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a German monk who lived around 1500 AD, like 500 years ago. And he was, he was absolutely tormented with his own sinfulness and his inability to purge himself of his sins. It nearly drove him mad. At that time, the only, pretty much the only church, certainly in Western Europe, was the Roman Catholic Church. And the Roman Catholic Church at that time taught that God's grace, God's grace doesn't save you despite your sinfulness. What God's grace did was it came into you and enabled you to become righteous to stop sinning, right? But Martin Luther found that no matter how hard he tried, he could not become righteous. He could not get rid of the sin in his life. And it drove him nearly mad. And there was one verse in particular in the book of Romans that he particularly struggled with. And we're going to encounter it in chapter 1, which we'll look at next week. It was this one. For the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That verse nearly drove him mad. He said, these words, righteous and righteousness of God, struck my conscience as flashes of lightning, frightening me each time I heard them. If God is righteous, he punishes. So he said he hated the term righteousness of God because what he saw when he saw that term was this holy righteous God who is going to punish sinners like him. 
and sinners like us. And so he fought and fought with this verse. He prayed and meditated over it for years and years and years. And then it says, Finally, God had mercy on me, and I began to understand that the righteousness of God is a gift of God by which a righteous man lives, namely faith. He started to realize that this righteousness of God, it's not talking about God is righteous and He's going to punish us. What it's actually saying is God is going to, we are going to be given as a gift, the righteousness of God is going to be applied to us, not based on our works, not because we are righteous, but based on our faith. That if you have faith in Jesus, you will be declared righteous and therefore you will live. And this is so cool. He says, Now I felt as though I had been reborn altogether and had entered paradise. In the same moment, the face of the whole scripture became apparent to me. My, ma- my mind ran through the scriptures as far as I was able to recollect them, seeking analogies and other phrases, such as the work of God by which he makes us strong, the wisdom of God by which he makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. Just as, just as intensely as I had hated the expression, the righteousness of God, I now lovingly praised that most, most pleasant word. This passage from Paul became to me the very gate to paradise. He said, when he understood what that verse meant, the righteous will live by faith, it completely transformed his life. It opened the doors to heaven to him. Because now he realized he didn't have to be righteous. He didn't have to be perfect in order to get to God. He is righteous. God has just said, you are righteous. God has applied his righteousness to us. And so heaven is open to us. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah? yeah, completely transformed his, his whole view of the scriptures. Now, at that time, the Bible was only available in Latin. So it could only be read by priests and monks who understood Latin. And all of us, if we wanted to know what the Bible said, we had to come to a priest and a monk and ask them to tell us. And what Luther realized is that They were teaching things that were not true, that were not what the Bible actually said. And so he believed that the Bible should be available to all of us to read ourselves and to figure out what God is saying and what the truth is ourselves so that we don't have to rely on somebody else to tell us. And so he, when he he announced that as far as he was concerned, the the church, the official church was teaching wrong things, he was... That was basically illegal. So he went on the run, and luckily, a bunch of German princes hid him in their castles. And while he was hidden away, actually, last Christmas, I got to go to one of the castles he was hidden in and see the room where he translated part of the Bible into German. And he basically hid himself away from the church and translated the entire Bible into German. And this was around about the time that the printing press got uh, invented. And so once it was available, they were able to start printing Bibles and distributing them. And that completely transformed the world. It ignited ignited the world, set it alight. It is the reason why we're all sitting here 
today with English Bibles in our laps is because of what Luther discovered when he actually studied the book of Romans. It's the reason why we know that we are saved through faith by God's grace and not by our works, not by anything we did. That all started with the book of Romans. So that's a pretty cool book. And I'm excited, I'm nervous, because it's also a difficult book. There's a lot of stuff in there. But I'm also excited because it changed the world. Um, yeah, so that's the book of Romans. Now, one of the problems we have when we study the Bible is you can only really look at a little bit of it at a time because there's so much there, which is fine, but the consequence is we, we read these little pieces of it and we don't see how they all fit together, how this verse fits into the context of the whole chapter, how the chapter fits into the context of the whole book, and how the book fits into the context of the whole Bible. It's very hard to see all of that while also trying to, to figure out the depth of the specific thing we're looking at because we can spend a whole week studying a verse, right? And so then you don't see how that verse fits into the whole book. But one of the things you discover, and particularly with, with Paul this is true, is if you actually sit down and you read his letters, his books, from the start to the end, Romans chapter 1, verse 1 to Romans 16, verse something, and you just read it all at once, you, you see that he's not just telling us a whole about a whole bunch of random different things. It's all part of an argument that he's building. Each idea and each chapter builds on what he's said before it to form part of the argument that he's making. But like I said, we often miss that because we can only look at a little bit of it at a time. So what I wanted to do to start off with is to look at the whole book of Romans at once, to try to understand what the argument is, that what it is that Paul is trying to communicate through his whole letter, not just one verse at a, at a time or in a particular verse. Does that make sense? That's the plan, but it's also a little bit, uh, maybe a bit ambitious because there's 16 chapters and there's a lot there, but that's the plan. So I spent the last week reading and trying to understand the whole book and to figure out exactly what point Paul is trying to make in each chapter. And that's a bit simplistic because he can be making multiple points in a chapter. But basically, what is, the, what is the narrative? What is it that he's trying to say across the whole book? And so I, would, I kind of characterize it like this. In chapter 1, he says, we've abandoned God. Chapter 2, we're all guilty under the law. We'll go through this in a little bit more detail in a sec. Chapter 3, God offers us another type of righteousness. It, it is not a new kind of righteousness. That righteousness has no limit. It sets us free from sin. It causes us to die to the law. So we cannot be condemned. Gentiles have received it. Israel is still striving to achieve their own righteousness. But ultimately, Israel will be saved. And then given all of that, we should live for God, we should live in love, we should seek peace, we should show grace, all glory to God. So that's how I would characterize the book of Romans. 
but we'll look at that in a little bit more detail. So, in chapter one, Paul begins by introducing himself. I'm Paul. This is who I am. I'm apostle to the Gentiles. That's probably Suzanne. She's always making noise with her kids. I'm apostle to the Gentiles. He explains why he's writing. He explains who he's writing to. It's the believers in Rome. He tells them that he's been wanting to like, come and meet them for ages, but stuff's been preventing him, but he hopes that soon he'll be able to come and visit them. And then he kind of, uh, then he has that verse that we looked at before that, wrote, that Luther said he really struggled with, which was, the righteousness of God has been revealed through faith. And then he, he quotes this verse from Habakkuk, which is an Old Testament book that says, the just or the righteous will live by faith or by faith the righteous will live. And then, then Paul goes on to detail in quite painfully sin, the problem of sin. He says that basically man has failed to acknowledge God as God, that they should have known that he was God, because it's obvious his power and his nature is obvious through the world that he's created. But they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshipped and served the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So rather than acknowledging God as our creator and as God, we've chosen throughout history in different ways to worship his creation and ignore the creator the one who did the creating. And he says that since we have abandoned God and refused to worship him, to refuse to treat him as God, he has essentially abandoned us to our own desires, to our flesh, to our sinful nature. And that basically people have become more and more full of sin. And then he describes in lots of ways, which we'll look at when we get there, just the sort of sin that is common in the world. But then he says in chapter 2, before you go like pointing the finger at other people, thinking you're so good, and they're all sinful and bad, we're all guilty of this. That... And I was reading Luther, Martin Luther's preface, like what he's written about the book of Romans, and the point he makes is that, is that when we think about laws, we think about things you have to do or not do. And as long as you do or not do them, you've fulfilled the law, right? Don't speed, don't steal. If you don't steal, good job, you've, you've done tick, right? But that, that's not the case with God's law. With God's law, you actually need to want to do or not do those things. So even if you do them, but in your heart you wish you didn't have to, or you don't do something, but in your heart you wish you could, you would if the law wasn't there, you, you have already, you've still failed it. You still haven't fulfilled the law as God has presented it. Does that make sense? 
So he's saying that you might be really good. You might come to church every week on Sunday, right? And you look down on the people who don't come to church every Sunday. But if in your heart you kind of wish you didn't have to come to church every Sunday, you're, you're still a hypocrite. You're still no better than the people who don't come. We're all guilty. Does that make sense? That's quite rough, right? That's quite heavy. What do you do with that? Basically, as far as Paul is concerned, nobody can be declared righteous. So there's this word that comes up quite a lot called justified. Justified by grace, right? Or justified by the law. That word justified means declared righteous. So at the end of a court case, the judge can bang his hammer and say, you are innocent. That's, you have been declared righteous, right? What Paul says is that nobody will be declared righteous according to the law. Nobody will be declared innocent. Everybody is guilty. So what now? Where does that leave us? God apparently is our loving father. He loves us. He wants us to be with him. And yet nobody is going to be declared righteous by the law. So what? Well, that's chapter... Ah, oh, so chapter 2, he says, Therefore you are without excuse, whoever you are, when you judge someone else. For on whatever grounds you judge another, you condemn yourself, because you who judge practice the same things. So that's what we were saying before. Nobody's innocent, everybody's guilty. So then what? Well, chapter 3, Paul says, Well, God has revealed a different type of righteousness. What we've been talking about before is righteousness according to the law, right? You've been declared innocent or guilty based on whether or not you've obeyed the law. And everybody fails. But now he says God has revealed a different type of righteousness, a righteousness that is not based on the law. It's based on our faith in Jesus. What did we say the word faith meant? Trust. It's trust. I have faith in you. Means I trust you. I trust you're able to do what you said you're going to do. So God has said, I'm going to save you. We have to have faith, faith in him. What that means is we have to trust that he is going to save us, right? And if we do that, it says he will declare us righteous. Not based on what we've done, but based on our faith in him. Does that make sense? Completely different type of righteousness. It's not based on whether we've obeyed the law. It's based on whether we trust in God. And if we trust in God, we're righteous. Not we're going to be righteous. We are righteous. As far as God is concerned, he's taken Jesus' righteousness and applied it to us. And when he looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. He sees Jesus. Right? So this is the new kind of righteousness, the other righteousness that Paul is talking about. It's not based on the law, it's based on your faith. If you have faith in God, trust in Jesus, you are righteous. God declares you righteous. He says you are innocent as far as he's concerned. Make sense? Okay. So then the question is, where does this come from? Because all through the Old Testament, everybody thought the way to be righteous was to obey the law. But now we're told, no, that's not the way to be righteous. The way to be righteous is to trust in God. 
And so then Paul says, well, is this... Oh, keep forgetting. So this is verse from verse, uh, chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law, although it is attested by the law and prophets, has been revealed. Namely, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. So that's where he's saying this righteousness of God that you can that you can have separate from the law without obeying the law has been revealed. And it is a righteousness of God that we get given through Jesus' faithfulness for everybody who believes in him. And he says here, it's, it was attested to by the law and the prophets that the Old Testament actually told us about this. And so that's what he's going to come to in chapter 4. He's going to say, this is not actually a new idea. And he goes back to Abraham as the example. There's a verse that says... It's not a verse. It says it several times through the Bible. Who is Abraham? Who is Abraham? Where would you read about him? Back in Genesis, and what, what happened to Abraham? Yeah? He got forced to leave his family, and uh, he's going to make a whole uh, country nation. Yeah, so Abraham was the person who was selected by God, and God said, I'm going to, basically, I'm going to save the world through you and your descendants. He's the first place that the promise came of the Messiah to a specific person. It was going to be to the descendants of Abraham. And then Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has the 12 sons, which form the tribes of Israel. And then out of his son Judah, out of his descendants, comes Jesus. Right? That's Abraham. Now, the question is, well, firstly, is Abraham saved? Presumably, right? Presumably Abraham was saved. He's chosen by God. All of these promises made to him, presumably he's saved. On what grounds was he saved? Was he saved because he obeyed the law perfectly? No. And that's not even what the Bible says. The Bible says he believed God and that was credited to him as righteousness. That's what the Bible says, even back in Genesis and all through in other places, it, it quotes that, that Abraham was saved. He was credited righteousness. Righteousness was applied to him, given to him because he believed God. That's salvation by faith, right? That's salvation by believing God. So this isn't a new idea is the point that Paul's making. And he makes another point. He says, not only, was right, not only was Abraham declared righteous, credited righteousness on the grounds of his belief, all the promises that God gave him were given on the basis of faith, not based on works. So God made all these promises to Abraham. He didn't say, I will... He didn't say, if you obey me, then I will do these things for you. Because then you can't be very confident that those things are going to happen, right? 
because they depend on Abraham and Abraham's descendants doing particular things or not doing particular things. But God wanted his promises to Abraham to be sure, certain. We could know that they are going to happen. And so it says, For this reason it is by faith, so that it may be by grace, with the result that the promises may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are under the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And so it says that Abraham that the promises that God made to Abraham were given on the basis of his faith in God. And so they didn't depend on him, they depended on God's grace. And so then he could fulfill them whether or not Abraham or Abraham's descendants obeyed him. Does that make sense? And not only that, he says that it was given to him on the basis of faith so that, it would, so that they, could, they could be applied to all those who are, have the same faith as Abraham. So you wouldn't necessarily need to be a descendant, a genetic descendant of Abraham for these things to apply to you. He's saying that Abraham is the father, not only of those who are physically descended from him, but also the father of everybody who has the same faith as Abraham. That's us. Make sense? Okay. So he says, this is not a new idea. This has been around since the beginning. And he also quotes from David in the Psalms, talking about how blessed people how blessed the people are who God forgives. So there's this idea that God forgives us, right? And that in that we are blessed. And then he goes on to talk a bit more about what this righteousness is like. And he says that this righteousness has no limits. It doesn't matter how much you sin. There's no limit to it. Because it's by God's grace. And he says... Yeah, he has this really cool bit where he talks about like where all this comes from. And he says, uh, death entered the world on account of one man's sin. And although, yeah, uh, so one person's sin led to everybody's death. And then he says, but one person's death leads to everybody's life. Adam sinned, everybody died, Jesus died, everybody lived. Kind of cool. Uh, and then he says, judgment. So you have one sin plus judgment equals condemnation of everybody. But infinite sins plus grace equals righteousness and life for everybody. And he's like contrasting the two. Um, and he says, because uh, Adam's one sin caused all people to be condemned as sinners, but Jesus' one righteous action caused all people to be justif justified or declared righteous. And then he says something very interesting. Why was the law given? Why did God give us the law? What do you think? <laughs> the question is, why did God give us his law? Ideas. Say what? You can say it for him. Did God give us his law to make us better? So that we sin less, do you think? No? 
Why we, why, your parents make laws for you, rules. Why do they do that? They're supposed to, well, in theory, if you, you're supposed to do them, right? Obey them? Yes. Supposed to be, make you a better person? R Paul says something very interesting about God's law. He says, God didn't give it to make us better people. God gave his law to make us worse people. He gave it to, so that we would sin even more. But he says, he'll explain, I think, a little bit later why. But he says that, well, he says, the law came in so that transgression, sin, may increase. But where sin increased, grace increased even more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness to eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, sin results in death, grace results in eternal life. And however much sin there is, God's grace can, can extend even more, can expand even more. Does that make sense? So it doesn't matter how much sin there is. The more sin there is, just the more grace there is. There's no limit to God's grace. There's no limit to the righteousness that can be applied to us on the basis of God's grace rather than on the basis of our obedience. Does that kind of make sense? Okay, but he'll explain that a little bit more in a bit. So, then he talks about what this, uh, what this does. So he says that we have been set free from sin, which we talked about quite a lot at Cultivate. Well, actually what he says is, it's quite interesting. The way he writes is really interesting. He says, okay, fine, we are... The more sin there is, the more grace there is. And grace is a good thing, Right? So should we sin more then, maybe, so that God's grace is more? And he says, no, don't be silly. He says, you are a slave to whatever it is you obey. And if you're going to be, if you're going to continue sinning, you're a slave to sin. But we have died. If we, what he says is, if we want to live with Jesus, we need to die with him. And he says that Jesus died to sin, so we should, in our minds, die to sin as well. We're set free from it. We're no, longer, uh, we're no longer led by our flesh by sin. And he says, you were slaves of sin and free with regard to righteousness. I found that really interesting. We'll talk more about it when we get there, but that'll be ages. When you were slaves of sin, but free with regards to righteousness. What does that mean? In, I, I, I get what it means to be a slave to sin. And I don't know how f so far in your lives, how to what extent you've come to see that as true in your life. But we are slaves to sin a lot of the time. We've, we, well, Paul talks about it later. We keep doing things we don't want to do and not doing things we do want to do. We're pulled away all the time by our flesh, by sin. So we are, in a sense, slaves to sin. How were you... So this is before you were saved. How were you free from righteousness? 
I thought that was really interesting because it's, it's, it doesn't mean you're a slave to sin and therefore are not righteous. This word free is associated with that word slave. In the same way that you are a slave to sin, you are not a slave to righteousness. You can do what you like, which is kind of interesting, I thought. But that is actually what people, people who reject God, say God does not exist. They are, in a sense, free from any moral accountability, from any moral law. They don't believe they're responsible to anybody or accountable to anybody. So they can kind of do what they like, right? They're free from it. They're free from the obligations of righteousness. But what you tend to find is that when you have no higher standard to live up to, all you're left with is yourself to decide what you should and shouldn't do. And so then what, you, what you're left with is a slave to yourself, to your body, to your flesh, even as you're free from righteousness. You're not responsible to God or to obey any of His laws. And Paul says... The end of those things, being a slave to sin and free from the law of righteousness, the end, of the end result of that is death. But now, he says, you've been set free from sin. You're no longer obliged to obey the desires of your flesh, of your body. You have other options. You're free from sin, but you're now slaves of God. <laughs> Because now suddenly you are accountable to somebody, right? You know that there is a standard that you, that you should be living up to. But, but, what he, but the point he makes is you're not trying to be righteous out of fear of punishment. Because you're not going to be punished. You, are, you have already been saved, right? So the, the, the sort of attitude is completely different. You're not obeying, the, you're not trying to be righteous because you're scared about being punished if you're not. It's more like you don't want to disappoint your father, your loving father, right? You, want, you actually want to be better for him. Does that make sense? It's quite a different way of thinking about it. We now are slaves. We feel, we feel obligated to do something, but it's not because we're scared of the consequences of not doing those things. It's because we want to please the the God, the, our Father, who's given, given us this righteousness. Does that make sense? So now we're, we're still slaves and free. Before we were slaves to sin, free from righteousness. Now we're free from sin, slaves to righteousness. But where the result of being slave to sin, free from righteousness was death, the result of being free from sin and slaves to righteousness is sanctification leading to eternal life which is much better, obviously. Okay, so we're set free from sin. We're no longer responsible. We don't have to obey it anymore. But not only were we slaves to sin, in chapter 7, Paul, we, Paul talks about this idea that we were, in a sense, married to the law. So if you think back to Ruth, it would be kind of like being married to that other Goel the law. And what that meant was we had to obey it. We were subject to it and it judged us. It determined whether what we did was right or wrong. Right? But in chapter 7, 
Paul says, we have died to the law. It's dead to us. We are no longer subject to it. We are no longer judged by it. Which means we are now free to marry the other Redeemer, Boaz. We're free to marry Jesus. And instead of being subject to and judged by the law, we're now subject to and judged by Jesus. And that's a completely different thing, right? Because He loves us. The consequence of that is, uh, now we have been released from the law because we have died to what controlled us so that we may serve in the new life of the Spirit and not under the old written code. So now we're under Jesus, not under the law. And the consequence of that is, we cannot be condemned. You can only be condemned, judged, judged and condemned according to the law, right? These are the standards. Have you met the standards? No, you're guilty or yes, you're innocent, right? But that, the whole law, we have died to it. It's no longer, it no longer plays any part in our faith, in our life. So if the law is dead to us, on what grounds are we going to be judged? We can't be condemned, right? There's no way to condemn us because there's no standard against which to say that we've failed. Does that make sense? The law's gone. Who would judge us? First, say. First judge. It's not a trick question. The judge of all the earth, who would that be? Well, yeah, Jesus. Okay, so... There's God, the Father, judge. Is, ju- is God going to condemn us? No. J- God loves us. And in, in this chapter, that chapter, this chapter, I think, he talks about the fact that, no, it's this one, I think. We've died to the law. He actually says it's as, it's as though we have died and our bodies are dead. But then Jesus puts his spirit in us and brings us alive again. It's almost as though we're like animated, we're like brought, we're, we're moving around by God's spirit in us. That's the idea. And he's saying that as part of that, as part of putting God's spirit within us, he makes us part of his family. He makes us his sons and daughters with Jesus, right? Now, if God loves us so much that he's going to make us his children, he's not going to condemn us right? He's not going to judge us. And then the other judge would be Jesus. Jesus died for us, right? So he's not going to condemn us either. And so then Paul says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor heavenly rulers, nor things that are present, nor things that are to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's pretty cool, right? Absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God. So that's the case that Paul is making. We're all sinful. We cannot be redeemed by the law, but God has given us a different way to be redeemed, and that is through faith in Jesus. There's no limit to that salvation. He will save us no matter how bad we are. It's not new. It sets us free from sin so that we're no longer controlled by our flesh, at least as far as God's concerned, 
it sets us free from the law, so we're no longer judged by the law. Therefore, we cannot be condemned. You will not be condemned. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Cool? It's pretty amazing. So then he says, okay, well, that's fine. But Jesus was Jewish. He was sent as the Messiah of the Jews. But today, most of the church is Gentile. Most of those who have been saved by righteous, who have been made righteous by God's grace are Gentiles. And so then he starts to deal with that in chapter 9. He says, the first thing he says is, this isn't a surprise. In the Old Testament, God makes it clear that this is exactly what's going to happen. That the Gentiles are going to receive God's righteousness by faith, or through faith, by grace. Initially, at least, and Israel aren't. And if you think back to the story of Ruth, that's the same, same there, right? Ruth gets to know Boaz, the, the, Naomi's redeemer, before Naomi does. So he says, that's not a surprise. In chapter, so he says, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, even though they pursued a righteousness, even though they pursued a law of righteousness, did not attain it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but by works, as if that were possible. So he's saying that Israel was still trying to make themselves righteous by obeying the law, which is impossible. And so he goes into greater detail about that in chapter 10, explaining why it is that at the moment, Israel have not found righteousness in God. It's because they're still trying to create righteousness for themselves by obeying the law. They're not willing to accept God's righteousness. They want their own. In chapter 10, Paul says, For I can testify that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not in line with the truth. That's quite tragic. They're working so hard, but they're working in the wrong direction. What the work that they're doing is not aligned with the truth according to God. He says, For ignoring the righteousness that comes from God and seeking instead to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They're still determined to make themselves righteous and they're unwilling to submit to the righteousness that God wants to give us as a gift. Does that make sense? But that's not going to last forever. Naomi did ultimately come to know Boaz, right? And to be redeemed by him. And that's the point he makes in chapter 11. He says that once, he says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. You won't be arrogant about it. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so, and then all Israel will be saved. So he actually says, Israel were allowed to become disobedient. This is actually something else he says, is that we were once disobedient and God showed his grace to us. He had mercy on us. So he has now allowed Israel to become disobedient so that he can show mercy to them too. So that everybody will experience his mercy. And he says that the reason that that's happened is so that the Gentiles, so that we can be saved. But he says... There's a number. He knows how many Gentiles are going to be saved. And once that number's complete, once the last Gentile who is going to come to Jesus has come to Jesus, then 
Israel also are going to have their eyes opened. They're going to recognize their Messiah and they're going to be saved too. Make sense? It's quite cool. So that's all the theory. Paul explaining how this works so that we understand. The rest of the book is, okay, well, now what? What does that mean? How should you live? And so in chapter 12, he says that, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is at your reasonable service. He says we should devote our whole lives to God. We should die to ourselves, to our own desires, and live our life for Him. That's how we should respond to everything that He's done for us and that Paul has explained to us. He says we should love one another, serve one another, be gracious to one another. He says that we should... Uh, why? The night has advanced towards dawn. The day is near. So then we must lay aside the works of darkness and put on the weapons of light. He's basically saying Jesus is coming. So get on with it. Sort yourselves out. Put away the works of darkness, sin, and start living for God. And he, yeah, he talks about loving one another, serving one another like Christ has served us. And then he says, don't fight over things in the church. Pursue those things that create peace, that create unity within God's family. Let us pursue what makes for peace and for building one another up. And he says we should show grace to each other. What is grace? Yeah, all of this is grace, right? This is the way that we're given righteousness. We don't deserve it. God gives it to us by his grace. And he's, Paul says in chapter 15, we should, we should treat each other with grace. When somebody does something that annoys you, don't fight about it. Show them grace. Serve one another, even those who don't deserve it, because that's what God has done for you. And he says, Now may the God of endurance and comfort give you unity with one another in accordance with Jesus Christ, so that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think that um, that might have been one of the verses that Geordie talked about with Unify last week, what he wanted to achieve with that youth worship, work, youth worship night, was to bring us all together so that we have one heart one voice can glorify God. And that's what Paul says God wants to achieve in us. And so don't, don't allow things to divide us. Be gracious to each other, particularly those, well, it's something we'll talk about later, but those who are weaker in the faith, he says. Don't put blocks, don't put stumbling blocks in front of them. Don't make their faith harder than it has to be. Be gracious to them. Create unity within our body so that we can glorify God together. And then in chapter 16, he finishes the book. He sends, he asks that the people in Rome would pr like look after the lady who's been sent with the letter to him, somebody called Phoebe, uh, who's come from Corinth, where Paul presumably is. 
and we think she brought the letter to the Romans and he says, like, look after her, give her whatever she needs. And then he sends greetings to all sorts of different people in Rome from himself, from his scribe Tertius, and also from other believers that were in Corinth. And then he has this amazing, what's called benediction at the end, where he ascribes all glory to God. He says, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the revelation of the mystery that has been kept secret for long ages, but now is revealed to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be glory forever. Amen. So to him who is able to strengthen you, who's that? God. So to God, according to my gospel and the revelation of the mystery that has been kept secret for long ages, but now is revealed. What is that mystery? Sorry? No, it's now been revealed. It's the fact that we can be saved by faith. It's what this whole book is about. All through the Old Testament, people thought they had to be saved by... Well, basically, the question is, how are we going to be saved? When we're all so obviously sinful, even with the law of God, we are still sinful. How on earth is God going to save us? That's the mystery. And the answer is now being revealed. By God's grace, He's going to declare us righteous on, a, on the grounds of our faith, not on our works. Does that make sense? To bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be glory forever. Amen. And that will be the end of the book of Romans. Many weeks time, probably. So next week, we'll be able to go into chapter one and actually start digging deeper. But we will now be able to, wherever we are, whatever verse we're struggling through, we'll be able to take a step back and understand what the whole story is and how it fits into the, the larger argument that Paul is making. Does that make sense? Cool. All right. Let's pray. Does anybody have anything they want prayer for?